Good afternoon, everyone. There was something very special about the 12th century that led to the flowering of Jewish Bible commentaries that are based on Pshat. I won't mention now all the uh, scholarly theories about why this happened specifically in that uh, century. Some of this may become clear in the continuation uh, of this session. But today I will concentrate on the two best-known biblical commentators of the 12th century, Samuel ben Meir, Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, although in my house we usually refer to Rashi as uh, Rashbam's grandfather, but, uh, uh, and uh, Abraham ibn Ezra, uh, who were born about 10 years apart from each other and had many commonalities with each other. Uh, the most important commonality, of course, was the pursuit of, uh, of Pshat, sometimes when other people were not all that interested in Pshat. But it's hard to imagine two more different people. And so it's really uh, amazing that often their commentaries and their methods are similar. Some of the differences between these two people. Rashbam, as far as we know, never left northern France. Uh, was born there, studied there, and presumably died there. Ibn Ezra was the Marco Polo of the 12th century. Uh, he was born in Muslim Spain. Uh, he moved to Israel. He says that he moved to India. I have no reason to, to doubt him. Uh, I presume he's a truth teller. If he says he went to India, he went to India. And then he came back west. And most of his works were written either when he was living in Italy or in France or in England uh, at the end of his life. Rashbam was a yeshiva boy. He was a yeshiva student who spent most of his life studying Gemara and Halakha. He dealt with Bible as a, uh, as a sideline, as a hobby. Uh, Ibn Ezra wasn't a yeshiva boy. He didn't have a yeshiva background. Uh, Professor Uri Simon of uh, Barilan University, I uh, once heard him uh, at a lecture say that he assumes that Ibn Ezra had a good education in the Rif, uh, in Rav Yitzhak al-Fasi, which is, it wasn't all that common, he said, in Muslim Spain for people to learn, uh, to learn Gemara. And, uh, and, and so he could assume that Ibn Ezra uh, studied, studied the Rif, but anybody who has studied the Rif knows that various things appear in the Gemara that uh, Rav Yitzhak al-Fasi, when he, when he wrote his summary of the uh, Gemara, his praise of the Gemara, left out various things that aren't halachalamaseh. Uh, uh, and, and so he had, one might say, from a halachic perspective, a more limited uh, uh, education than uh, Rashbam had. Uh, on the other hand, if we talk about education that isn't halachic education, Rashbam, we don't, uh, as far as we know, had no education other than uh, Torah. Uh, Ibn Ezra was an expert in philosophy, uh, in languages, uh, clearly in Judeo-Arabic, and uh, scholars argue about how good his uh, his pure Arabic was, but uh, but certainly he did. Uh, he did know uh, Arabic, uh, astronomy, and also astrology, which was considered a science uh, back in his days. We might not consider it to be a science today, but he had an extremely wide education outside of Torah. Uh, 
One of the reasons that Ibn Ezra may have gotten interested in and involved in Pshat is because of his interest in rationalism. You can you can see a certain connection between rationalism and Pshat. The, you know, sometimes when you look at some of the midrashim, you say that. The, and those are the midrash seems far uh, far removed from the rational and logical understanding of the text. So it's possible to argue that uh, Ibn Ezra's philosophical background was something that pushed him in the direction of interest in pshat. Uh, but you can't say that about uh, about Rushbaum. Various things that we don't know did. Rashbam and Ibn Ezra ever meet each other? It's possible that they did. We do know about uh, correspondence between uh, uh, between Ibn Ezra and uh, Rashbam's uh, slightly younger uh, brother, Rabbeinu Tam. And there's, uh, some people say that they met, that Rabbeinu Tam and uh, and Ibn Ezra met. And so it, it's theoretically possible, since uh, since Ibn Ezra lived for a while in France and wrote some of his books in France. It's theoretically possible that they could have met each other. I think it unlikely. Uh, did they read each other's works? Uh, they were both producing Torah commentaries around the same uh, point in time, and did they read each other's works? Uh, scholars uh, disagree about this. Uh, I, th- I think it is likely that Ibn Ezra read some of Rushbaum's works. And a scholar who I really uh, respect, named uh, Professor Itamar Kislev, has argued recently that that uh, Rashbam also read part of Ibn Ezra's works. He, the, the jury is still out on all of these questions. So those are just a, a few words of introduction, and we'll really we'll let the texts of these uh, of these Bible commentators speak for themselves. I did not take out my Tanakh, so anybody else who forgot to take out your Tanakh, it's a good time to take out your Tanakh. And let's open up our Tanakh in Sefer Devarim. Chapter 13, start reading in verse 2. Ki yakum b'kirbacha navi, o cholem chalom v'natane lecha ot o mofet. Uva ha'ot v'amofet asher dibere lecha lemor nelcha acharei Elohim acherim asher lo yedatam v'na'ovdeim. So we have, a, uh, we have a false prophet here who is encouraging us to worship Idols. Lotishmael divrea navia hu o el cholema chaloma hu ki menase adonailo echem et chem ladata ishemo avim et adonailo echem, behol of avchem uvehol nafshechem. Don't listen to the false prophet. Achare adonailo echem telechu, voto tirau, vet mitzvotav tishmoru, vocolo tishmau, voto tavodu, votit bakun. Stick with God. And the penalty for false prophecy is uh, is death. One sees a big difference 
between Ibn Ezra and Rashbam and their worldview when you look at their commentaries to this uh, to these verses. Uh, you have on almost all the texts here. You have here the the Hebrew and the English. I'm going to continue to speak in English. Can I just take a little vote? How many people want me as I'm reading through the text to read them in Hebrew, and how many of you want me to read them in English? I think I'm only going to do one of them. Hebrew, Hebrew, English. Okay, the Hebrew went out, so you'll be able to follow the English. It's uh, it's right here, and I'll try to give a little uh, summary. So the Hebrew uh, of uh, Ibn Ezra's commentary, Can anybody figure out Ibn Ezra, you know, what's, what's bothering Ibn Ezra here? Why does he feel at this point, you know, Nevi'im have been, uh, have been mentioned a number of times beforehand in the Torah. Why specifically at this point is he, so to speak, defining what a Navi is? I think the crucial word here in Ibn Ezra's comment is the word sheyomar. <coughs> He's not a prophet. He's pretending to be a prophet. And so this is someone who says that God spoke to him, either when he was awake or when he was asleep. And then he goes on. The Yeshomrim ki tachin liot hanavi mi meganvei devar Hashem. Maybe. This prophet is somebody who stole the words of God. In other words, that he's a plagiarist. Upirush, shamar nevi ha'emet ot kach lahatziko, v'shama ha'shomea, v'higido liot ot lenafsho. What happened? Maybe this prophet heard this prophet in quotation marks, this false prophet, heard a true prophet speaking. And the true prophet gave a sign to prove his prophecy and said, on July the 30th, it's going to snow in Jerusalem, and which is would be quite a miracle if that happened on July the 30th. And then the false prophet went to some other location and delivered a message and said, now the proof that I am a true prophet is I give you the sign that on July the 30th it's going to snow in Jerusalem. And then when it snowed in Jerusalem on July the 30th, that's why people were willing to, uh, thought that maybe this was a true prophet. Again I ask, What's bugging Ibn Ezra? What, what, what's troubling here in this, uh, in this text? What is, for, for a rationalist in particular, if you look back at the verses, what is the most difficult thing that it says in these verses? That, you know, we've got this false prophet, and he gives a sign, and then what does it say? Uva ha'ot v'hamofet. It happened. He gave a sign, and Ibn Ezra says, how is this possible? What does it mean that a false prophet gives a sign, and the sign comes true? How could it be? Well, so then he comes up with this plagiarism explanation. And then he says, or maybe 
maybe an ot doesn't mean a miracle. It just means a symbolic act that isn't miraculous. That's what he says in three. There were many symbolic actions and symbolic names that were given by prophets, but there's nothing miraculous about those things. So, Ibn Ezra refuses to accept the possibility of interpreting this text as meaning that this false prophet provided a sign of a miracle, and the miracle actually occurred. And so, he has a further problem. His further problem relates to to verse 4. Anybody see what the problem is in verse 4? If we say that this false prophet... uh, doesn't really hasn't really performed any miracles. Then what's pro- what's problematic with verse four? Pardon me. Yes. It's, so it says God is testing you. Well, if if nothing happened, how is it that God is testing me? If actually, if you say that this false prophet did succeed in doing a miracle, then we can say he succeeded in doing a miracle because God uh, is testing us. But Ibn Ezra, the rationalist, refuses to accept the possibility that a false prophet would be able to perform a miracle. And so, you see his comment here on verse 4, V'ta'am ki minaseh ba'avur she'azavo v'lo hemito. In what way is God, uh, is God testing us? By not killing off all the false prophets. Certainly, the false prophets never succeed in doing anything miraculous to mislead us, but the the way in which God is testing us is by leaving this prophet alive and not killing him. So this is a rationalist, a philosopher, trying to deal with the difficulties of uh, this section here in Parshat Re'eh that describes the false prophet. So that's... Ibn Ezra, with a wide philosophical education, Rashbam, just he's like he has no problems with anything in this text. He just says, "Uva haot v'hamofet shiodim atidot al yedei ruach tuma utrafim ve'of v'yidoni." There are ways of knowing the future, and they work. Jews are not allowed to use them. We are not allowed to go to an Ov, to a Yidoni, to a Trafim. They make use of the forces of impurity or, or Trafim, or they consult ghosts or familiar spirits. So Rashbam, who probably uh, represented the standard understanding of how this world works, that uh, looks, looking around this world, it looks like a lot of us come from an Ashkenazic background. Well, back, you know, 800 years ago, uh, the uh, the Svartim were the ones who had sophisticated philosophical uh, approaches to the world and the Ashkenazim didn't. And Rashbam says, clearly, it's possible to perform, a, to give a sign of something miraculous because it is possible using methods that are forbidden for, uh, that are forbidden for Jews to use, it is possible to find out what the future is. 
And what does it mean that God is testing us? He says it very clearly. It is to our merit if we do not listen to the uh, to, to the evil prophets who perfor- who uh, give us signs and these signs come true and how do they do it? Because there are forces of impurity in the world that it is possible to tap into and to know about the uh, and to know about the world. You know, it's a real question. Which one of these two approaches you would want to label as pshat? If pshat means like the rationalist kind of approach and the logical way of looking at the world, I'm guessing that most of the people here in the world think that there isn't a way using uh, using the forces of impurity to uh, to find out what the future is going to be. But which one is closer to the uh, to, to, to what the words mean? Which one, which one of them is stretching the uh, the words? It really looks like Ibn Ezra is uh, is stretching the words in order to get the Torah to fit into a uh, into a philosophical framework and. Getting the Torah to fit into a philosophical framework it, it might not be the same as, as explaining the pshat of the Torah. In fact, it could be, it could be very different. It, it could be something else entirely. I heard uh, at an event that I didn't uh, attend uh, that, was, that took place a, a few years ago, I mentioned before Professor Uriel Simon. He just wrote a fantastic book about, uh, about Ibn Ezra. And Ozen Milin Tivchan, and at the book launch, which uh, took place before I made Aliyah, so I wasn't there, but I was told that a professor there got up and said, this happens in Israel, that at book launches, sometimes people get up and challenge the person <laughs> who wrote the book. I don't know, in Chutzlar, it's at a book launch. People usually get up and they praise the, uh, the person who, who, who wrote it. But anyways, uh, so uh, I won't name the person who got up and said, I just have one trouble with your book, uh, Professor Simon, that uh, you, know, you keep talking about even Ezra's commitment to Pshat, and uh, this person said he wasn't committed to pshat; he was committed to philosophy, and he put uh, he put the Torah into a straitjacket to get it to conform to uh, to the philosophy that he be- believed in. Why why do you call this guy a, a, a pshat commentator uh, on the uh, on the Torah? Uh, okay, we can discuss uh, sometime whether uh, whether we're on Professor Simon's side or on the other professors uh, uh, on the other professor's side. Anyways, in the, the, this first example here on the uh, on the uh, handout here, Rashbam is the more old-fashioned, and even Ezra is uh, is, is stretching to uh, to get the Torah to conform with what he saw as the intellectual values of the world in which he lives, which is of course something that all of us do on a certain level to try to find some kind of marriage between the Torah and the intellectual world in which, uh, in which we live. However, this uh, putting aside this difference between Ibn Ezra and Rashbam, the next few texts that we will look at uh, seem to prove something almost opposite, which is that Rashbam was willing to be a lot more daring and willing to part with uh, traditional Jewish interpretation of the Torah in 
uh, in many, uh, many, much more frequently than Ibn Ezra was. A very famous text from uh, from Rashbam. You don't. Uh, I'm sure you don't even have to open up your Bibles here. Everybody knows that it says in the beginning of uh, Breshit six times. It says Vayhi Era, Vayhi Boker, Yom Echad, Yom Sheni, Yom Shlishi, and that phrase Vayhi Era, Vayhi Boker is we have all been taught from the time we were in uh, in first grade. We've all been taught what does Vayhi Era, Vayhi Boker teach us? That the day starts at night. Very good. That uh, you know, Shabbat begins uh, begins on Friday night. That uh, if somebody gets married, no, they can't get married tonight. It's the, it's the nine days. But if somebody gets married uh, next Wednesday uh, at uh, at eight p.m. Uh, or at nine p.m., they'll write in the ketubah b'chamishi b'shabbat. They'll, they'll call it Thursday because if it's dark outside, it's no longer. So that's the, the halacha is very clear, and we, we all. Uh, associate that halacha from the time we were very young with this verse. And I'm sure that Rashbam got the same good Jewish education that the rest of us got. And when he was young, they told him that that's what the verse means. But Rashbam, being the kind of guy that he was, looked at the words and he said, that's not what the words say. And he walks us very slowly, talks to us almost as if we're idiots here, as if we might not know what these words here mean, and he walks us through the meaning of each of the words here. Vahi era, vahi boker. Ein ketiv kan vahi laila, vahi yom. It doesn't say, and there was night and there was day, which is what we said before, that the night, that the day follows the night, the night precedes the day. And that just, that's not what it says. Ella vahi erev. It says there was evening. What does vahi erev mean? Sheheriv yom bishon b'shika haor. The first day, the light of the first day went down, and there wasn't light anymore. We all know that that's what evening means, that the light is disappearing. And then, what does vayhi boker mean? Because it's a Talmudic phrase he quotes here from Gemara Zvachim, bokrosha laila. It's the boker that comes after the laila. Sha'Allah Amud Hashachar. He says, what does Vahi Boker mean? This means, and there was light. In other words, God created in the first day, and then it got dark, and then it got light. Yom Echad. And Sha'Allah Amud Hashachar, Arei Hushlam, Yom Echad, Mina Shisha Yamim, Sha'Mara Kadosh Baruch Hu, Baser Dodi Brot, Vachar Kachitchil, Yom Sheni, Vayom Elohim, Mihi Rakia. So when did the first day end and when did the second day begin? Pardon me? At sunrise. When the light came. The low Baha Katuvlo Marsha Ereva Boker Yomehad Hem Kilohutrachnu Lafaresh Ella Heyahayu Shishayamim Shivkir Yom Vinigmara Halaila Hare Nigmar Yomehad Vitril Yom Sheni. The text has no interest in telling us what constitutes a halachic day. This has no that, that, that's not what this text is about. It's telling a story, it's telling a story about creation, and in the story about creation, there are six units that are called days, and each one of those units finishes in the morning. Uh, and this, uh, for those of you who have not seen this interpretation before, it's a little bit shocking. And I might mention that uh, Art Scroll just uh, 
published a new edition of Mikraot Gedolot in English where they translated uh, the various uh, commentators into English. The, the, the Breshit volume came out and they uh, they, let, they put in all of Rashbam's commentary on the first chapter of Breshit, but they left out this text. <laughs> uh, that, that, which is, it, it's a good way of dealing with the text. <laughs> if, you, if you leave it out, then no one has to... Uh, it, so so for, for, for many years, this text has, has troubled people. Uh, just in case there's any doubt of any, in anybody's minds here, there's no doubt that Rashbam observed Shabbat from uh, from Friday night until Saturday night. There's no doubt that if Rashbam was the Masada Kiddushin next Wednesday night at 9 o'clock, that he would write in the Ketubah B'chamishi B'Shabbat, that he'd call it Thursday. There's no, but he says that's not what the text, text says. And so this willingness to uh, interpret the text of the Bible in a way that does not jive with tradition. On the next page... You have a uh, long spiel by Ibn Ezra. This is the introduction to his book that he wrote called Igeret HaShabbat. And scholars uh, discuss what book, in, in, the, in this text here you will see that Ibn Ezra came in contact with a book that caused him to write his own book and the purpose of his own book was to prove that the Jewish day begins at night. In other words, to defend tradition. He wrote a long book to to defend that tradition. And the question is, what book was it that that, that came to his attention? And uh, I'll I'll tell you already that I'm pretty certain that it's Rashbam's commentary that we just saw on the previous page that came to his attention. And this is what caused him to write his Igeret Shabbat. As we go through the text, uh, I'll, I'll show you uh, what parts of this text make me believe that he's referring to Rashbam's commentary. It was uh, the year 1159. Midnight. Uh, it was Friday night. It was the 14th of Tevet. This will become significant in the continuation of the story because he needs moonlight in this story. So the fact that it's the 14th of the Hebrew month is useful for there to be uh, moonlight. Abraham the Sfaradi, the Spaniard, I was living in one of the cities of the island that is called Kitsei Haaretz, the corner of the world. Anybody know what island that might be? I'm sorry? I don't think so. England. Why? Because what is England called in French? Angleterre. Could say Haaretz. The, uh, the yes. So uh, he moved from France to England towards the end of his life, and so he thought that the name of that of that country was Angleterre. So he was living in one of the uh, cities in this uh, place called Angleterre, called England. Vani hayiti yashen. I was asleep ushnati arvali, and I was a good sleep, a pleasant sleep. Vareh b'chalom v'nei omid le'negdi k'marei geber u'viyado igeret chatumah v'yan v'yomer elai kach zot ha'igeret she'shachai lecha shabbat. So 
Somebody appeared in front of him and, and handed him, said, here's a letter from you that Shabbos wrote to you. Uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped. 10. So I bow down to God. You can see, those of you who know uh, Tanakh well can see that it's just stringing together various psukim to write this uh, text. God, I, I thank God who gave us Shabbat and he has now given me this great kavod that I grabbed this letter in my two hands more, and my hands were dripping with myrrh. I liked the, the beginning of the letter, but the end of the letter, not so much. He, he also gave us, I didn't give you the, uh, the, the contents of the letter. Uh, the contents of the letter are written in Sephardic poetry in Spanish poetry uh, in, in the, uh, the, the in the style of poems that Ibn Ezra himself uh, wrote, but I guess it's possible that Shabbat could write a letter in uh, in the style of of Spanish poetry. Uh, yes, 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 yes. It, it does sound like we're dealing with a dream here, but uh, but you know what what they do wrong. What does Shabbat have against me? I've been, you know, dedicated to Shabbat from the time that I uh, that, that I understood anything about God. I've been uh, dedicated, and I, I, I gave covenant to Shabbat when uh, when she entered and when she left. Uh, so, twelve. We uh, Shabbat found out that your students brought a new Torah commentary to your house yesterday. Visham katuv lechalel et leil hashabbat. And the implication of this Torah commentary is that Friday night isn't Shabbos. So, gird your loins, fight the honorable fight in honor of Shabbat. And so the, the last four words here of, uh, of section 12 here, I think, are very significant. Lo tisa Pnei Ish. What do you know about the author of the commentary that, from the fact that the emissary of Shabbat is saying to him, Lo Tisa Pnei Ish? You know, pardon me? That he's a good guy. Yes, that he's, that he's a big guy. That he's an important guy. And you might think, yes. So, some people say that maybe Ibn Ezra is actually reacting to some book that we've never heard of that didn't, uh, that, that didn't reach us. But I think from those words, lo ish, we have some pretty strong evidence that he is reacting to a book written by somebody 
for whom there was covered. And Rashbam had covered. He was one of the Balayatos. Thought he was respected. Uh, and, and so, but even, even if it, it's an important person, you should fight against him. Vaikats. I woke up. Pardon me? You said the Rashbam didn't say that. Oh, I guess. Well, you'll see in the continuation what he what he quotes. It's I think that he's stretching what Rashbam is saying here, and he said, and, and you'll you'll see from the continuation. I think that 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 he, he almost admits that he's stretching it. Uh, so I got up. I was very angry. Uh, so I took these, uh, this Torah commentary outside into the uh, moonlight. That's pretty close to a quotation from Rashbam's Torah commentary. And we, 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 now, it's true that there are many Torah commentaries that got lost over the years, so it's possible that there's another Torah commentary that said something like this. And, uh, 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 but it's very close to what Russia I, I almost uh, tore my uh, my clothes. Karati with an eye, and I almost tore up this uh, Torah commentary. Even though it was Shabbos, ki amarti tov lechalel Shabbat achat v'lo yichalu Yisrael Shabbatot harbe. There's a principle in the Gemara that it's possible to be mechalel one Shabbat if it's going to cause Jews to observe many more Shabbatot. There are many uh, halachic restrictions on that on that principle, but still there is a principle of that nature. So maybe there's a mitzvah for me to tear this thing up on Shabbat in order to cause uh, cause future shmirat uh, uh, Shabbat. If they see this bad comment the commentary. And you know, if this commentary gets around, we will be a laughing stock in the eyes of the uncircumcised ones. Who are the uncircumcised ones? The Christians. And the Christians say that the day begins in the morning. And, uh, and we've been telling them all these years that the day begins at night. And then got this book from one of our rabbis that says that in the chapter of, of uh, first chapter of Rashid that the day begins in the morning uh, it, it's a, it's a big problem so I almost tore it up at Shabbat but then I remembered that it was Shabbat and I didn't uh, I, I didn't tear up this book as soon as Shabbat is over, I'm going to write a new book. And I'm going to use this book to prove that uh, this interpretation is wrong. Pharisees and Sadducees. When he says Pharisees and Sadducees, he means Rabbinites and Karaites. So if you think that maybe the Karaites were the ones... that it isn't the case. Karaites all say that Shabbat begins in the evening. So this is not something that is a dispute between Rabbinites and, and, and Karaites. Uh, I asked one of my friends who's an expert in Karaite Bible commentaries, and he said he's never seen a Karaite Bible commentary that makes the claim that the day begins in the, uh, uh, in the morning. Um, 
כל ישראל הפרושים, גם כל הצדוקים עמהם יודעים כי לא נכתבה פרשת בראשית מעשה השם בכל יום, רק בעבור שידעו שומרי התורה איך ישמרו השבת. This is a pretty strong argument that even Ezra is making. It is clear to anybody who reads the Torah that the reason that the first chapter of Breshit is there is to encourage us to be Shomrei Shabbat. And then if, if the Shabbat, if the days in that chapter begin in the morning and end in the morning, then you know, it's out of sync with the desire of the Torah, which is to encourage us to observe the Shabbat day. Rak babur shiadu Shomrei Torah yichishu Shabbat shiishpetu kasher Shabbat Hashem anichpad lispor yemei Shabbat. That's how we have to count the days of the week, and that's how we have to uh, yes. So Rashbam offered a. Uh, one might say a heterodox, an unusual kind of interpretation of the text. It's not, you wouldn't really say that it, uh, it goes against halacha because this isn't a, uh, this isn't a halachic text. It's a, it's a narrative text, but it's explaining the narrative in a, uh, in a way that doesn't conform with what we know about later halacha. Uh, I would just say that uh, in, in defense of Rashbam, Decide, whether, whether you like his textual arguments or not, uh, you, you can all decide yourselves whether, whether it's uh, convincing what he said about the words Erev and Boker. But uh, I would just argue that psychologically speaking, it's definitely true that all of us, cross-culturally, we all believe that, uh, that the day begins in the morning. And if somebody comes to you tonight at 9 o'clock and asks you what day of the week it is, I'm sure that all of you will still say Wednesday. And I'm sure if somebody comes to, if you're up at, uh, at 1 o'clock in the morning and somebody asks you what day of the week it is, even though you know Canadian law and American law and Israeli law all say that at 1 o'clock in the morning it's already Thursday, we'll all And I used to bring proof uh, many years ago when I taught this from the best-selling magazine in America 30 or 40 years ago. Anybody know what the best-selling weekly magazine 30 or 40 years ago? No. TV Guide, that's right. And in TV Guide, we all know, many of us in this room are old enough to remember such a thing as TV Guide. And I checked in my local Israeli newspaper and they still list the nighttime television shows until six o'clock in the morning. They list them on the previous day. So that's <laughs> yes, I, yes. I don't. I, I, not that I'm saying that Rashbaum had that to uh, to guess. Okay, so Rashbaum continues to offer various uh, surprising kinds of uh, interpretation. If you turn to page three, uh, the uh, the verse in Shmot chapter 13, Vayalacha loot al yadcha ulatotafot bein einecha ki biya laman tie torat hashem beficha ki biyad chazaka hotziacha hashem mimitzrayim. Maybe I'll just read that in English uh, translation. This shall serve you as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead in order that the teaching of the Lord may be in your mouth that with a mighty hand the Lord freed you from Egypt. For, from time immemorial, as far as we ever uh, know, uh, Jews were interpreting this, uh, this uh, verse as being about tefillin, until Rashbam came along and uh, said, 
that he doesn't think that that's what the words mean here. According, I'll read this in English, according to the profound, plain meaning of scripture, omek pshuto, it's an interesting phrase. If you think of the pshat, sometimes people will say that the pshat is the superficial level of meaning of the text. If you look at a text quickly, that's the. But if you look more deeply, then then you come to the midrashic understanding. Rashbam says that you have to go deeply into the text in order to understand the pshat, the contextual reading. It's like the verse in Song of Songs where the lover says to the beloved, let me be a seal on your heart. Does the lover really want the beloved to be a physical seal on the heart? No. We all know that that's an allegory. And the same thing here, it says in the verse here, so that the Torah of God will be in your mouth, Beficha there does not mean that there's anything that goes in the mouth. And also, Al-Yadcha and Be'nei-Necha, you should surround yourself with Torah as if the Torah were written on your arm and on your head. Ibn Ezra, who wrote two commentaries on the book of Shemot, Rashbam definitely put on tefillin. I'm not sure whether he put on Rashi tefillin or Rabbeinu Tam tefillin. I, I can't resist. I have to tell the joke. You know, I can only tell the joke to people who have studied this rush bomb. So now you've studied this rush bomb, so I can tell the joke. The, stoke, uh, the, the story about the joke about the two uh, former yeshiva boys who meet uh, 25 years after they're in yeshiva together. They meet on the street, and one of them knows, uh, notices that the other one isn't wearing a kippah anymore. He says, What happened to you? What, 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 what? You're not wearing. He says, You know, people change. He says to him, uh, You still observe Shabbos? He says, uh, Sort of. Uh, not the way we did back in yeshiva. Still keep kashrut oh, at home. We, we try to have a kosher home. And he says to him, Tfilin, do you still put on Tfilin? And he said, Put on Tfilin shall rush bomb. But there, there's no question that Rashbam put on tefillin every day. And he felt, and we'll say more about this, he felt that there's a level of understanding of the text that's called the shot level of understanding of the text. And then there's also the halachic level of understanding of the text. And he writes in his introduction to this, uh, to this commentary that his commentary is presenting the shot level of understanding of this text. Ibn Ezra, again, uh, Ibn Ezra wrote two commentaries on, on Shmot. The first one, the shorter one, he wrote when he was living in Italy. And then the second one, the longer one, he wrote when he was living in France. And there's a good chance that before he wrote this longer commentary, he, uh, he heard or saw, whether he saw it in writing or he heard that Rashbam is explaining the verse this way and he, he is very unhappy about it. There are those who disagree with our holy rabbis. 
שאמרו כי לאות ולזיכרון על דרך כי לוויתכן הם לראשך וענקים לגגרותיך גם ופשרתם לאות על ידיך כמו כושרי מלוח ליבך תמיד ואין זו דרך נכונה. So that they say that this is to be understood allegorically like those verses in Mishle that are clearly to be understood allegorically. But this is poor methodology, says Ibn Ezra. כי בתחילת הספר כתוב משלי שלמה. It says in the beginning of Proverbs that this is a book of Mishalim. See, the word mashal is a, uh, is a difficult word because it can mean a proverb, but it can also mean an allegory. Uh, and, and, I think, and so uh, uh, even Ezra is arguing here that because the book is called Mishle, that it's, it's, uh, it's legitimate to give allegorical interpretations of, uh, of text. But the, the, the Torah is not filled with things that are to be understood allegorically. Who, incidentally, is arguing that the Torah is to be understood allegorically? Paul. Yes, Paul and the Christians. Yes. Uh, and, and, and so it's amazing that you know, Rashbam, who has lived all of his life in a Christian country, is offering this allegorical interpretation. And uh, even Ezra, the Sparty, who's just showed up in uh, Christian countries in the, la- in the last years of his life, say, what are you doing interpreting this text in an allegorical uh, manner? Raku kamashma'o. As long as a verse doesn't contradict reason, then we uh, we interpret it literally. Like the verse that says, circumcise the foreskins of your hearts, does not mean that we should do open heart surgery and look to see where, where, where we can find a foreskin on our hearts and remove that. It, it, that's not what it means. That has to be adjusted to conform with, uh, to conform with reason. Um, okay, I'm trying to make a quick judgment whether I can get through all of these texts. I think I can. Okay. Um, moving on. So here again, though, it is possible to say, this is not the biggest problem with Rushbaum's Torah commentary, because still it is possible to say that there's a pshat level of understanding of the text and there's a halachic level of understanding of the text. And the pshat level says... You should surround yourself with Torah as if it's written on your arm and on your head. And the halachic level says you should put on tefillin. And those things aren't in contradiction with each other. They're not coterminous, but they're not in contradiction with each other. It's possible that we should do both of them. Yes, please. Yeah, Ben Ezra quoted, um, in arguing against uh, Rashbam's commentary, he quoted Zvarim, what the Parshat But Rashbam is... is, is that's right. That's right. 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 But he's he's giving his methodology that I will accept the literal understanding of a verse in the Torah unless there is. Sadia Gaon discussed this issue before Ibn Ezra. When do we depart from the literal meaning of a verse? And he was and, and Ibn Ezra is following. So he's just giving a different a different example about uh, when to interpret literally or not. Uh, Okay, the next text is more problematic, the difference between Ibn Ezra and Rashbam on this, uh, on, on this issue. Um, the verse in the beginning of Vayikra, chapter 21, in the beginning of Parshat Emor, talks about when a Kohen is allowed to go to a funeral, 
The Kohen should not uh, go, uh, make himself impure when somebody dies. Except for Sheiro and his uh, mother, father, uh, son, daughter, brother, uh, uh, single sister. And then verse 4 says, very difficult verse, Lo yitama ba'al be'amav lehechalo. So, the Gemara says, I'll read this in English maybe just to save time instead of dealing with the Aramaic of the text. How do we know that a Kohen attends his wife's funeral? For it is written, except for She'ero is close to him, and it was taught She'ero means his wife. She'ero means wife. But further, the verse says, he shall not define himself as a husband. Lo yitama ba'al be'ama, verse 4 says, uh, it can be understood as saying, that a husband should not go to his wife's funeral. Uh, a, a husband who is a kohen should not go to his wife's funeral. The halacha is, incidentally, mitaminoto ba'al korcho. If there's ever a kohen who says, I don't want to go to my wife's funeral, I don't want to be, then you pick him up and you put him into the cemetery. And you, you make him, you, he has to do it. But it looks like verse 4 is saying maybe that he shouldn't do it. So the Gemara says the two verses may be harmonized as saying that there are husbands who should defile themselves and husbands who should not. If his wife is a permitted wife, then he should defile. But if he married somebody that he shouldn't have married, then he doesn't go to that, uh, to that uh, wife's funeral. And that is the halacha in this, uh, in this situation. Ibn Ezra in his commentary on this verse says... It used to seem to us, I'm not sure really, I'll give you two translations here for the phrase, hayanire lanu. It could mean it used to seem to us or it could have seemed to, uh, to us. It's either a past tense or perhaps a subjunctive, a, a, a counterfactual. Uh, we have far fewer tenses in Hebrew than we do in English. Hayanire lanu kepirusho kamo ishi shokol she'er There's a verse. That's a, the word she'er generally is a word for blood relative. And in these verses here where it says that a Kohen shouldn't go to a funeral except for his she'ero, it's kind of like there's a colon after the word she'ero, <coughs> except for a blood relative. And then they define what a blood relative is. A mother, a father, a brother, a, a sister, a son, or a daughter. Those are our blood relatives. And... We all hope that that's what the word she'er means in the verse, ish ish el kol she'er besaro lo tikrivu legalot erva, that you should not have uh, sexual activity with your she'er. You know, if she'er means spouse, then you know we're all in very big, uh, very big trouble. So, 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 you know, I used to think that she'er, like in that other verse, means a. Uh, a blood relative, shame klal. perat, limo, etc. And then after giving the general principle of blood relative, it explains what a blood relative is. The tam bal be'amav, and then verse 4, I, th- I used to think meant, shelo yitama habal be'ishto, that a uh, kohen should not uh, go to his wife's funeral. V'chasher ra'inu she'etiku rabotenu ki yitama le'ishto batel ha'perush ha'rishon. 
Once I saw that Chazal said that a Kohen has to go to his uh, wife's funeral, then I have eliminated that first interpretation. So he eliminated it, but Rashbam still writes it. Rashbam writes, top of page four, Shum ba'al ba'am ha'kohanim lo yitamal le'ishto lehechalo sharem yitchalel mikuhunato. No husband from the company of priests shall define himself by contact with the dead body of his wife lehechalo, for that would render him unfit for the priesthood. But according to the rabbis, the verse means that he shouldn't defile himself by contact with the dead body of his unfit or disqualified wife, but he may defile himself by contact with the dead body of his legitimate wife. So there uh, we see that Rashbam, in this somewhat troubling kind of way, lists beside each other two interpretations that are mutually exclusive because the Kohen either either he goes to his wife's funeral or he doesn't go to his wife's funeral. It's not like saying that there's an allegorical understanding of and a physical understanding at the same time. But you, you can't both go to the funeral and not go to the funeral. But he says, you want to know what the pshat is? The pshat is that he doesn't go to the funeral. You want to know what the rabbi said? The rabbis say that he does go to the funeral and he just leaves you like that. The rabbis are wrong. No. I don't think so. Uh, as he says, in, you know, it is, I'll tell you the truth. You know, I was really young and started studying Rushbaum. I thought that that might be what he was trying to hint. But I'm, I'm convinced that that's not the case. And, you know, he, he often says, like this next text here, let the wise understand that all of our rabbis' words and Midrashic explanation, explanations are honest and true. The essence of halachic and midrashic exegesis is derived from superfluous language in scripture or from linguistic anomalies. This is how midrash works. Midrash is a way of looking at a text where you look for anomalies, you look for superfluities, and when you're doing pshat, you don't, you don't ask questions like that. And halacha is based on the rabbinic way of understanding the text, and the pshat is something else. And it can even be possible that the pshat and the halachic understanding could be mutually exclusive. And I'll live with that, Rushbaum said. I don't know. I think for like 40 years I've been trying to figure out what it really means for Rushbaum to say that he, uh, that he lives with that. But you know, he never really, never really helps us through understanding uh, what this uh, means. Some people have suggested that he, uh, you know, that 800 years ahead of his time, he was a postmodernist. The, you know, the postmodernist would argue that, that you know, there isn't a, uh, like a correct interpretation of a text. And, you know, any, any text, uh, any interpretation of a text that's done in a kind of uh, legitimate, uh, you're not fooling yourself when you do it, but you're trying to understand the text as a legitimate way of understanding the text. And so different people will get to different understandings of the text. And, but when it comes to living our lives, we will, of course, follow what Chazal said and their understanding of it. And so something of that nature is what uh, is, is apparently what Rushbaum felt. Pardon? I'm, I, yes, I am uh, being an apologist. 
I'm certain if he were here standing in front of us, he'd be able to do a better job, but he isn't. The plain meaning of the verse is written in such a way that one is additionally able to learn from it the essence of the Midrashic explanation. For example, it's written, such as the story of the heaven and the earth, Bihibaram, as they were created. The rabbis interpret that last word Midrashically to mean Ba'avraham. Through the merit of Avraham, they were created. They did this, why? Because of the superfluous language of the verse. For the word Bihibaram did not have to be written at all. From a pshat understanding of the verse, the, the verse could have said, Elu toldot shamayim va'aretz, and there was no need at all for the word Bihibaram. And that's how the Midrashic method works. When they find a word that is superfluous or unnecessary, then it's an occasion for a Midrash. And when it's dealing with laws, that's how we learn various laws. And if you think, and this is also something that when I was very young, I used to think and that I stopped to think, but if you think that maybe he doesn't really believe that what the rabbis were doing is interpretation, it's not the case. He really believes, if some of you were at the, I think at least one person was at the, had the misfortune to be at my talk both this morning and this afternoon. When I was talking about Shmuel David Lutzato this morning, Shmuel David Lutzato really believed that the rabbis were very often legislators, that when, when you see a gap between what the rabbi said and what the pshat says, it's because the rabbis were legislating as opposed to interpreting. Rashbam would have none of that. And I, I give you a little example here, I just, because they asked me to be within four pages and because it's hard to translate Talmudic passages, I didn't uh, translate this, but uh, in, in, in Rashbam's commentary on Psachim, it talks about anybody who uh, does not give proper honor to Chol HaMoed, Rashbam says in his commentary, Shosem Lacha Shel Moed, he does work on Chol HaMoed, because there's a verse that says, Et Chag HaMatzot Tishmor, that you have to observe Pesach. And there's a Midrash that says, Ed Chag HaMatzot Tishmor is the source for the, for the principle of not doing Malacha on Cholom And Nafkalan, the Masechet Chagiga, and in Chagiga they explain that that's how we know that it's forbidden to do Malacha on Cholom That's not the Pshat of the words, observe Chag But Rashbam takes this seriously enough his brother, Rivam, Rav Yitzchak ben Meir in the Tosfot in Chagiga says, Kein perasha Rivam de melacha de moed mi de Rabbanan. Rav Yitzchak ben Meir says that the not doing melacha on chola moed is not all right, it's only de Rabbanan. V'lo ke perush Rabbeinu Shmuel. And not like Rashbam. Rashbam thinks that it's all right. So he sees those words. Ed The Gemara and Chagiga says we learn from here that 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 there's uh, that you're not allowed to do melacha on cholamoed. Rashbam says melacha on cholamoed is the oraita, the yisur of melacha on cholamoed. So he takes midrash extremely seriously. He does not use the kind of out that uh, that, that uh, Lutzato used, that Shadal used, of trying to argue that the rabbis were legislators. Why does Ibn Ezra have difficulty with Rashbam's approach? Well, maybe the secret uh, can be found in one of his grammar books. And I, again, will give uh, uh, 
credit to Professor Uri Simon, who uh, heard a lecture from him 10 or 15 years ago in which he uh, cited this little passage from uh, from Ibn Ezra's grammar book, Yesod Diktuk, which I think tells you a lot about how Ibn Ezra understands what it means to interpret a text. So Ibn Ezra is, in this text, he's making fun of people who have ideas about biblical interpretation that Ibn Ezra doesn't like. Uh, Ibn Ezra does a lot of that. Uh, a lot of people in the 12th century, the 12th century was an exciting, uh, as I said, century for, uh, for, for the creation of Bible commentaries, but it was also a, uh, the style of people writing about their intellectual opponents in the 12th century, I think, was, uh, I think uh, Ibn Ezra, Rashbam, and, uh, and Rambam, all of them uh, write very strongly against their intellectual op- opponents. So, so here, Ibn Ezra is making fun of people that he disagrees with. Uba Omro, when he says, this verse has ten different meanings, Yitalel ben Afshaw, he's so proud of himself. When people hear this, somebody gets up and says, I've got ten different interpretations for this verse, and gets up and he offers them. We all sit there and say, wow, that's great. Says Ibn Ezra. The opposite is true. Ki besumo ta'amim rabim lepasuk lo yeda eze yichshar hazeh ozeh. That's a verse from Kohelet. Some of you might recognize it. See, when you when you offer ten interpretations for the same verse, that means that you don't know what the verse means, and that's why you're giving ten interpretations of the verse. Gam yitachin shelo yichaber befeirusha peirusha emet. And when you list those ten, it's possible. First of all, uh, there there are nine that are definitely wrong, and there could be. Ten that are wrong in the ten interpretations that you offer of the verse, and then he makes this clear statement about his methodology as a commentator. Anybody who writes a book, whether it's a prophet writing a book or a sage writing a book, ta'am echad lidvarav. There is only one correct explanation for the words of any author. In other words, Ibn Ezra does not believe in the multi-leveled nature of the text, that you can have different interpretations. And Rashbam clearly does. Rashbam is talking about this all the time, about there's what we understand from Pshat, and there's what we understand from Midrash. Ibn Ezra thinks perhaps because of his philosophical training or something like that, Ibn Ezra thinks that there's only one interpretation for any text. And I think that goes a long way to explaining many of the differences that are between them. And because Ibn Ezra was a loyal Jew, and Shomer Mitzvot, and I'm sure he put on Tzvillin too, uh, then to say that there were two levels of meaning of that text is very unappealing, uh, very unappealing to him. But for Rashbam, who I think is firmly, with his feet firmly in the Talmudic tradition, he understands that there is more than one level of meaning for any text. Uh, We have two minutes if anybody wants to ask any questions or let you go early. (laughs) Pardon me? Okay.